the title of our sermon today is called Two Ways of Coming to Jesus. Two Ways of Coming to Jesus. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before thee, O Lord, and we ask for thy grace and thy mercy, O Lord. Lord, that thou wouldst bless us as we hear thy word preached. We listen to the exposition of thy word, O Lord, that thou wouldst make application to our hearts, O God, or that thou wouldst draw us closer to thy Son, Jesus, and that we might rely upon thee, O Holy Spirit, to be our interpreter, our teacher, our leader, the one who gives us power and strength to live unto thee, O God. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear Church, all people must deal with Jesus Christ. They must make a decision about who he is. As C.S. Lewis famously said, no one can ignore him or the claims he makes about himself. He is either a lunatic, a liar, or he is truly the Lord of all. Likewise, those who come to Jesus come to him in a number of ways and for a number of reasons. Today, we will look at an interesting case study in the life of Jesus Christ. Two sets of people coming to Christ for very different reasons. One set, his own disciples, and the other, two blind beggars who had merely heard of Jesus. We read about these people in our New Testament reading. In both instances, Jesus asks them this, What do you want? What is it that you want from me? Why do you come to me? Whether converted or unconverted, all people must ask themselves why they are coming to Jesus. Is it with selfish motives that they come? Or with a heart truly willing to be granted his presence and his mercy. Our confession of faith states that true faith, quote, believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. This is chapter 14, paragraph 2. That true faith believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word based on God's own authority. This means that whatever the Bible says about who God is and what he does, true faith believes. But not only this, true faith also apprehendeth the excellency of those truths. In other words, it considers them to be worthy of belief and pleasing to the soul. Finally, our confession adds that true faith also enables the believer to, quote, cast his soul upon the truth thus believed. Or in other words, to fully rest in them as not only theoretically excellent to the mind, but also experimentally powerful to life and practice. The right way of coming to Jesus is in humble faith, believing that whatever he says is entirely true. It's in an apprehension of Christ's excellency and in a faithful casting of one's very being into Christ's care. Jesus' investigative question to the seeker who comes to him, which he poses to see whether they are coming in true faith, is this, What wilt thou? What is it that we want when we come to Jesus, him or his? who he is or what he can give, selfish motives or humble motives. Today we will look at three points, two ways of coming to Jesus, and then we will look at how we should come to Jesus. These shall be taken from our New Testament reading in Matthew 20, verses 20 through 34. First, in coming to Jesus, do we come selfishly? It's the first point we'll look at. Coming to Jesus selfishly. Secondly, coming to Jesus humbly. And lastly, we will apply it 
How shall we come to Jesus? Number three, how shall we come to Jesus? So first, coming to Jesus selfishly, as Jesus' disciples did. Many people think that religion is a means of personal gain. They come because of selfish motives. They think religion will make them wealthy, healthy, happy, and whole. They have no eye to the true core of religion, namely God himself. They know nothing of the sum of religion contained in the Westminster Shorter Catechism question 1, which states the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The Christian faith demonstrates how man can once again fulfill this chief end in reconciliation to God through Jesus. They have no knowledge of this. The sons of Zebedee came to Christ in a similar manner. James and John came to Jesus for power, prestige, profit, and honor. Part of the absurdity of their request lies in the fact that along with Peter, they were Jesus' favorites. John was the beloved disciple, you recall. So let's look at some of the aspects of their coming to Jesus and how people still come in these same ways. First, they did not come willingly of their own accord. As we read, they were brought to Christ by their own mother. She stood as a mediator between them and Christ. It was to her that Christ asked, What wilt thou? And it was she that responded, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. It is possible that they may have put their mother up to this so that it might appear to be her request rather than theirs. Then they might have better chances of success, so they had false humility, or maybe it was to shirk any guilt for the request made. But whether she came of her own or they put her up to it matters very little. In either case, they did not come to Christ of their own accord. They used a mediator. No one can be saved by the faith of another. Remember, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment, and each person shall be judged according to his deeds, and not the deeds of someone else. That's Hebrews 9.27 and Romans 2, verse 6. So whoever comes to God through Jesus must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6 How many people in our day are coerced into saying a prayer, or are peer pressured into remaining in church, going to some church group? They are not coming to Christ of their own. How many more assume that the faith of their families is sufficient for themselves? They think to themselves, I am Christ's because my parents are his. But this is to have a false mediator and is not a true coming to God. For there is one God, and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5 A person must come to Jesus by their own choosing. They must have their only mediator between, between them and God be Christ the Lord, no one else, and no thing else. Secondly, they came to Jesus for personal and selfish gain. They asked that they might be permitted to sit, one on the right hand, and one on the left hand with Jesus in his kingdom. They desired to be lifted up in honor and glory, to be given a place of power and prestige. Their request revealed that they had no care for Christ himself or for any service to him, but only to benefit personally from his glory. It was also selfish. They did not care about their fellow disciples and what position they would have in Christ's kingdom, but they were concerned only with what they should have what James and John would get out of it. 
They did not care if their brethren would get the lowest place as long as they got the highest place. Let's contrast this with King Solomon, who, when the Lord said to him, Ask what I shall give thee. King Solomon responded, Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this, thy so great a people? 1 Kings 3, verses 5 and 9. You see, Solomon asked that the Lord would be with him in his mercy, as he had been with his father David. He asked that God would grant him the grace to rule according to God's statutes and not his, for God's glory and not his own. James and John would rather have the prestige of David than the wisdom and faith of David. Many in our day come to Jesus that they might have power, fame, wealth, and the praise of men rather than the praise of God. They wish to have men pleased with them rather than have God pleased with them. In this, they foolishly forsake the true gain of having Christ. They would rather be temporally blessed than eternally blessed. They do not recognize that by keeping their life temporally, they will lose it eternally. Nor do they recognize that the world passeth away and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 1 John 2.17 They assume that gain is godliness, as 1 Timothy 6.6 says. That if they come to Jesus, they will have an easy life. It is better to not come to Jesus at all than to come for personal and selfish gain. Third, they did not count the true cost of following Jesus. The fact that James and John came to Jesus for personal gain revealed their complete lack in understanding of true faith. They assumed getting personal gain was the goal of godliness. They seemingly had no perception that following Jesus was costly to their worldly accounts, but instead they thought that it was a means of increasing them. But Jesus graciously corrects them. He graciously corrects them. He says to them in verse 22, Ye know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? He informs them that they are misguided in their questioning, having no idea even what they are saying. No idea what they are asking for. He asks if they are able to complete what is necessary to share in his glory. Could they drink of the cup of suffering, which is Christ's alone? Could they drink down the wrath of God against sinners in their place? Could they be plunged into the baptism of God's judgment of sin, and this on behalf of all of God's people? They spoke much about enjoying the bounties of victory and glory, but could they fight the battle to get there? They spoke much about the trophy, but could they win the race? It is obvious they had not truly considered this, or they would not have answered Jesus, saying, We are able. Mercy of all mercies that Christ did not slay them where they stood when they uttered these words. They were claiming to be able to complete the work which only Christ could complete, the salvation of God's people. They had no idea the cost they were signing up to pay, a purchase they could never pay, a purchase they could never pay for in a million lifetimes. Jesus goes on to tell them in verse 23, Ye shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my Father. If they were to be his followers, they would indeed endure suffering, but not the suffering of the Redeemer, rather the suffering of the Redeemer's followers. They would indeed suffer mockery and persecution. They would forsake land and family. 
they would endure the hardship as Christ's disciples, but they would not do what only Christ came to do. Thus, they would not be crowned with the glory that only Christ deserves. We shall indeed as believers reign with Christ, but in our own place, not as Jesus, but as his disciples. For Jesus alone was the place of highest glory and honor prepared by the Father's hands. We cannot usurp God's sovereign order. No man shall thwart or alter God's decree. Thus, those who come to Christ must count the cost. That they will indeed be glorified, but only after denying themselves, taking up their crosses and following Jesus. Fourth, they misunderstood Jesus' ministry. James and John wished to partake in Christ's riches, but in a way which even he could not do, namely, without sacrifice, without self-denial. Jesus' work was accomplished through sacrifice and selflessness. They wished to rule indeed, but were unwilling to serve. Jesus reminds them that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. It's verse 25. They reign in selfish power over those that are lower than them. It shall not be so among Christ's followers. Christ tells them, but it shall not be so amongst you. But whoever will be great among you, let him be your minister, your servant. And whoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. It's verses 26 and 27. James and John wished to rule, not serve. To be chief among many, rather than a servant of all. This is not the way of Christ's followers, because it is not Christ's own way. He further demonstrates their error by declaring his own mission to them. Verse 28, he says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. The time of glorification, both for Jesus and us, his followers, shall indeed come. But in this life, their work is a work of sacrifice, self-denial, and service. Those who assume becoming Christian is a way to gain blessing and rank in this life demonstrate that they misunderstand Jesus altogether. We cannot come to Christ selfishly, dear believer. We can only come selflessly. Second point, coming to Jesus humbly. So directly after this encounter between the sons of Zebedee and Jesus, we come to another encounter between two blind beggars and Jesus. We really need to note the contrast in these narratives. In the first, those who came to Jesus came selfishly for personal gain. In the second, those who came to Jesus came in humility, seeking mercy. James and John were disciples of Jesus. They walked with him daily, seeing his miracles, hearing his teachings. Yet, they were without understanding, and thus they came to Jesus in a wrong way. Yet these two blind men had merely heard of the great works and sayings of Christ, and yet they came to him with right hearts. Let's notice a few things. First, that these blind beggars asked for mercy. They asked for mercy. These men sat by the road begging. They were truly poor in spirit. They recognized their lack and their emptiness. Yet when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they, quote, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us. It's verse 30. They did not cry out and say, Lord, see our plight, take pity upon it, and make us rich men. Make us great in your kingdom. Exalt us from our lowly state unto a high state. No, 
Rather, they cried out, Have mercy on us. Whatever you have to give, we will gladly receive. We know thy greatness and thy power, and we know that a mere crumb from thy table should do us more good than all the loaves we can gain by begging. Mercy is undeserved grace and kindness. It is unearned and unwarranted. Notice, the blind men called him Lord and the Son of David. These are titles, and they are titles of authority and divinity. Unlike James and John, who seemed to almost challenge Christ's authority and who gave no acknowledgement of his deity, instead, these blind beggars see that they are mere subjects of the King of Kings and mere creatures of the Creator. To truly come to Jesus, one must truly grasp their own place, that they are at Christ's mercy. They are approaching a king. They are approaching the one true and living God. They are in no place to ask for honor. Rather, they must give it. These blind beggars did just that. They did just that. Like Solomon, they asked for mercy rather than privilege. They asked for his help, not his wealth. David was not seeking to be king when he left off feeding his father's sheep. Rather, he was seeking to contend for God's glory and honor. And both Solomon and his father David were exalted for their humility. Those who see themselves as mere servants of the king will indeed be honored, and those who seek for the honor shall be rebuked, as we see in the cases of Zebedee's sons and these beggars. Secondly, these blind beggars were unwavering in their coming to Jesus. As they began to cry out to Jesus, coming humbly to him in faith, the crowds began to rebuke them to, quote, hold their peace. It's as if they said, remain silent, you beggars. Jesus the Christ is passing through. He has more important business to attend to. He has no time for filthy, poor, blind beggars like you. But they were unfazed by these rebukes. In fact, we are told that they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. They were the seeds that fell on the good soil. The thorns and thistles of the crowd's rebukes only caused them to see their need for Jesus more. They came to realize even more that if they were to have any hope at all, it would not come from their countrymen who were attempting to silence them, but only at the merciful hand of Jesus. Those who truly come to Jesus will not be easily put off course by the sneers and jests of others. They are not coming for esteem with men in the first place, so the lack of it which they find with men shall by no means discourage them. Those who come to Jesus like this are like Bunyan's pilgrim, who ran from the city of destruction with his fingers in his ears, shouting, Life! Life! Eternal life! Despite the cries of his friends and family to return unto the city of destruction. He just kept running. Life, life, eternal life, he shouted. Humility is indeed meek, but meekness can be persistent and should be persistent. The widow in the parable came to the unjust judge for justice persistently until the unjust judge said this, Though I fear not God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. It's in Luke 18, 4 and 5 that Jesus tells that parable. And what is Jesus' application for the parable? 
He says in verse 7, Shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? So we too must come to Jesus humbly, but must not give up after only a few trips to his throne, nor leave off seeking him because man or Satan tells us it is fruitless. No, our Christ is full of mercy and loving kindness for those who come to him. These blind beggars appealed to the mercy of Jesus. In the midst of the opposition, they cried out all the more for mercy. Let us do likewise. Third, they received mercy. Those who come to Jesus with a true heart shall not be turned away. The blind men cried to him for mercy and mercy they received. It says that Jesus stood still and called them unto himself and asked them the same question that he had asked James and John. What will ye that I shall do unto you? It's verse 32. They had sought him, and now they had an audience with him. What do you seek of me? A glorious place in my kingdom? Riches and honor? Ease and prosperity? For all things in your life to go as you desire them? No. But what did they say to the Lord when he asked them what he would have, they would have him do to them? They said, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. Verse 33. Their physical eyes, they mean, for their spiritual eyes already saw. They sought what only he could give them. They could not have the place of honor that was his to occupy, but they did not desire that anyway. They asked the creator of their eyes to restore them, that they might serve him with greater ease and comfort. Through the work of Jesus Christ, redeemed sinners can now approach the throne of God and ask for further enjoyments of his mercy. Jesus, our mediator, became a man, suffered our infirmities, overcoming sin, hell, Satan, and death itself by his death and and resurrection. Now, the apostle can say to us in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, We have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we might that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When we come to Jesus humbly, we are assured that we can ask for mercy and obtain it. The blind men asked for Christ's mercy and were given it. We are no different than they. The same mercy is available to us as was to them. They came poor and beggarly asking for mercy and came away rich in grace. Our text says, that in response to their pleas for mercy, Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight. Verse 34. Verse 34. When believing sinners come to Jesus in humility, understand the weight of their sin, and recognizing their need of him, he opens their blind eyes to see him as he is. We never have to fear dear believer, being turned away when we come to Jesus in humility. He shall have compassion on us and shall open our eyes. Fourthly, they followed him. After Jesus restores their sight, they respond. And what is their response to the mercy shown them? Verse 34, it says they followed him. Their spiritual eyes were opened, or they would not have asked the Lord for mercy in the first place. And now their physical eyes were opened. And they thought of no better way to employ them than in Christ's service. They followed him as disciples. They did not stay behind with their 
newly healed eyes to find worldly employment and make something of themselves. Remember, they were blind beggars. They were nothing. They now take the opportunity to become great. Rather, they employed their whole heart, mind, soul, and strength into Christ's service. Those who would truly come to Jesus must be willing to follow him. We cannot come to Jesus, get what we want, and then go back to our old life. Many people think coming to Jesus is merely praying some prayer of salvation, a mere get-out-of-hell-free card, and that they can then be free to go live as they please. No. Coming to Jesus includes a continual coming after Jesus, a following of him throughout all of life. Those who are forgiven much, love much. Third, how shall we come to Jesus? Our last point today, how shall we come to Jesus? We would do well to be like the blind men, dear church. We must come to him in humility, asking for mercy, not money, forgiveness, not debt-freeness, salvation, not success, service, not self-fulfillment. We can do this in a few ways. First, with eyes set on him, not ourselves. As Christians, our life is not our own, but has been purchased with a price, namely the price of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, God in the flesh, his own blood. We belong to Christ, and we owe him our all. We must not come to him with our own desires in mind, but must ask of him in accordance with his will. We must be like the Apostle Paul, who said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the life of absolute surrender to Jesus. That's what it looks like. We are dead to self and alive in Christ. The life we now live is to be lived in his service, a life given over to him and his will, a life lived by his power and for his glory. Keeping the eyes of faith on Jesus, dear believer, the one who loved us and gave himself for us, is the key that unlocks the door to the Christian life. Secondly, we can come to Jesus. When we come to Jesus, we must come with empty hands. We must come spiritually poor. We must recognize, as did the blind men, that we are spiritual beggars. We can demand nothing from Jesus, but must receive everything as it comes to us from his mercy and his grace. We have to merely receive it, not demand. We must be as the disciples who, when asked by Jesus to feed the multitudes, remember the thousands, recognized that what they had, a few fish and a few loaves, in their possession was not sufficient to get the job done. But what did they do? They looked to Jesus to work the miracle. We are not givers as Christians, but receivers. Receivers of grace, not givers of grace, not demanders of grace, but receivers of grace. The Christian life is one of spiritual reliance and poverty. Peter acknowledged this when he said to the crippled man who sat begging at the temple gate in Acts 3.6, Silver and gold I have none, but such as I have give I to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter knew that he could do nothing for the man. But Jesus could do all things through him. We must come to Jesus in all our prayers, dear believer, saying, Righteousness and goodness I have none, but what I have I receive from thee, O Lord. 
A third way we need to come to Jesus is willingly or of our own accord. We must come to Jesus with true hearts. To come to Jesus because someone brought us is to come not at all. James and John came to Jesus by their mother. She was the one who spoke to Jesus. They did not wish to even approach him. Each person, every person, must personally come to Christ if they are going to come to him at all. They cannot come to Christ through someone else. We must be the ones to cry out for ourselves. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Someone cannot do that for us. However, we have great confidence when we do come to Jesus. We have great assurance to come to him if we come ourselves in humility. For he says in John 6.37, Him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. We must come freely. We must come ourselves. And we are assured that if we do come, we shall be received. Lastly, let us come believingly. The blind men believed that what, that what they asked of Jesus, he could indeed give them. They believed that what they asked him, he could indeed give them. Else they would have not asked so fervently. Remember, they asked again when rebuked. Jesus tells us that, quote, All things whatsoever ye ask in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. Matthew 21, 22. Whoever believes upon the name of Jesus shall be saved. Whoever comes to him in faith shall not be turned away. But this requires that we come not selfishly, but selflessly. We must come in humility, eagerly desiring all things from his store of mercy. Dear Church, let us not be those who come to Jesus with selfish motives, to merely get temporal and personal gain. For if we do so, we shall have nothing of Christ. Let us not be as James and John, asking for a place in glory and honor, but as the blind men, asking for a place in Christ's compassion and mercy. We must come in humility, dear Church, knowing that we have nothing to offer and everything to gain from Him. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we again come to Thee. Lord, we ask for Thy grace and Thy mercy, Lord, that Thou wouldst apply this word to our heart, O God, that we'd be like the blind men who cry out, Have mercy upon us, O Lord, O Son of David. Lord, we look to Thy divinity. Lord Jesus, we look to Thy sufficiency, Thy mercy, and we seek all things at Thy hand. Thou art our good shepherd and the good physician the only one who can heal us, sustain us, and empower us by thy Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, please guide us, lead us, and preserve us, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.